What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. So with that, we're so excited today to get onto our next topic about what those different paths to research can be. There's not just one path. People take all different types of ways and different times in their life to get to research. So today we're hoping to talk about what some of those different paths may be and answer any questions that you may have. So we are welcoming Dr. Houston and Dr. Foster, who both have a bit of an interesting path to research, who took different different ways to get here. So if you'd like to do a little brief introduction, Dr. Houston, I'll hand it over to you. Sure, my name is Ashley Houston and I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Public Health Sciences at Washington University. And my research really focuses on shared decision-making, implementation science and health equity. And could you tell us maybe just a brief couple of sentences, Ashley, about your training and background? Sure. So my background is um, in occupational therapy, and I have a doctorate in occupational therapy. Um, I also received my master's of science in clinical investigation, which is an additional year. Uh, it's basically a research year that was, was supported through a grant through Washington University. So I could kind of extend my OTD project or, uh, beyond the original scope. Um, my research as an OTD student was with students, uh, with adolescents, with sickle cell disease, um, and developing an educational program for them when deciding um, uh, about uh, genetic inheritance of sickle cell disease and also sexual health education. Cool. Thank you. And Dr. Foster? Yeah. Hi. I'm happy to see everybody here. Thank you and welcome. Um, so my name is Erin Foster, and I'm an assistant professor in the program in occupational therapy at Washington University. Um, and my research um, focuses on functional cognition, so how we use our thinking and memory skills in everyday life um, to do the things that we need and want to do. Um, and I study functional cognition in uh, mostly neurodegenerative conditions, primarily Parkinson's disease. So I'm interested in understanding how cognitive dysfunction and Parkinson's disease impacts people's everyday lives and how we can develop um, intervention approaches to, to address that problem and support people's performance and participation in their daily lives. And um, should I talk about my background too? Yeah, a little bit about your training and background. Okay. Um, so I also am a WashU OT alum. I got my occupational therapy doctorate um, from WashU in 2005. And then similar, but slightly different from Dr. Houston, I also um, did the Masters of Science in Clinical Investigation uh, training program here at WashU, but I did that as a postdoc. 
So I graduated with my OTD, and then I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship actually in the psychiatry department with Dr. Uh, Tammy Hershey. And during that time, um, I was accepted into the postdoctoral program and, and got my MSCI degree. Um, and then after that, I um, got an institutional career development award through the Washington University Institute for Clinical um, and Translational Science. And then that's when I accepted my, that's when I became an instructor um, in the program in OT on faculty. Um, and then I got another career development award and an individual career development award from NIH um, that allowed me to continue my research and career development. And in the meantime, I also pursued my PhD. Um, and so I was in the PhD program in the Rehabilitation and Participation Science uh, program, which is housed in the uh, program in OT um, for many years. And I finally got my PhD degree in 2018, so just a few years ago. Excellent, thank you. So I'm just going to jump right into our first question, which is, um, when did you begin to consider a career in research? And so um, specifically, was there a particular person or a particular influence that, um, you know, that kind of fostered that? Or was there someone specific that encouraged you? Um, I'll go first since I'm already unmuted. How about that? <laughs> um, so honestly, I even fully aware of the possibility of a career in academia or research or what that would even look like or entail until late in my OTD um, schoolwork. So, um, and up until that point, I was really just following my interests, which started with my master's in OT research project. So that was really my first exposure to research and, and I was studying falls and Parkinson disease. Um, and then that somehow that research path or interest morphed into a study of prospective memory in Parkinson disease after I developed an interest in, I guess, OTs, occupational therapies intersection with neuroscience and cognition. So I was just kind of following this path. I was interested in these topics and I was provided opportunities to study them. And so that's kind of what I was doing. And then toward the end of my OTD um, tenure, uh, I was invited to do my apprenticeship, which I think is now called the capstone in the OTD program, but kind of that third experience. Um, I was invited to do my apprenticeship in Dr. Uh, Tammy Hershey's lab, and then also a postdoc in her lab. And that's really, when I got like true exposure to a career in research um, and a taste of what it would be like. And after that, there was, there was kind of no looking back. So when I sort of understood what that was, then I started figuring out um, and pursuing additional training options like the Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation um, that would allow me to do what I wanted to do. So I kind of just almost stumbled upon it while I was just following my sort of academic or scientific interests. And I guess you also asked a question about a person that encouraged me, should I? Sure, if there was, I just, you know, whether you had someone that was particularly influential or that encouraged you uh, to pursue. Yeah, research. and I think that's really important, at least in my career, is that I would say that um, 
the Carolyn Baum, Dr. Carolyn Baum, who was the then director of the program in OT, first really saw it in me um, before I even knew it. Uh, she kind of has a knack for that, that kind of thing. And she's the one that connected me with uh, Dr. Joel Perlmutter, who's the director of the Movement Disorder Center at WashU, who then hooked me up with Dr. Uh, Tammy Hershey um, due to my specific interest in cognition. Um, and then they all continued to support and encourage me through my training. And, and they actually still do to this, to this day. So I would say it was the three of them who sort of recognized it and, and sort of helped me along that career path. Well, I can answer the same questions. Um, so I was thinking back, Erin, as you were talking about this, and I guess my path was a little bit different. So I graduated from undergrad and I took about three or four years off working and decided, well, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I started working as a research assistant in Dr. Allison King's lab, who's on the faculty at WashU. And once I started working as a research assistant, I just loved it. I love the community engagement. I love working directly with patients, uh, with community members, and actually looking at kind of big picture questions, like how can we improve something that we're seeing at the clinical level, kind of more at a population level. So that really was compelling to me. Um, so that's when I decided to go back to school. I decided to go to WashU to pursue my um, doctorate in occupational therapy. And actually, Erin, I think at our like first or second day in OT school, you started talking about your MSCI. And I was like, what's that? What's that now? <laughs> what's this MSCI? And so I looked into it, saw that there were different, different options. And um, while I pursued my MSCI, it was when I was still a student. So it added a year to my training. So um, technically, after three years and the um, final um, capstone project for the OTD, sorry, field work for the OTD, I would have graduated in 2013, but because I did the MSCI year, it, I graduated in 2014. And that extra year actually gave me the opportunity to kind of advance some of my work. I had done some initial interviews and observational work creating an educational program for adolescents with sickle cell disease um, to help educate about genetic inheritance, like I said, and sexual health. Um, so once I had created this program, I was trying to figure out, well, what do people do with this? Now that we have this tool, what do people do? And my mentor, Dr. King, she connected me with Dr. Politi, Dr. Mary Politi over in the Division of Public Health Sciences, who was doing shared decision making and developing decision aids that extended beyond just kind of a knowledge tool or an educational tool and actually supported patients as they were weighing some of the different trade offs, thinking about what values, what things matter most to them, particularly in the context of decisions that are really preference sensitive. So thinking about what matters most to the patient when making a decision about whether or not to undergo a certain type of treatment or to be screened for a certain condition. So once I heard about that, I was like, oh, I think I wanna go over there and see what they're working on and learn a little bit more about shared decision-making. So once I graduated, I accepted a postdoc position over in the Division of Public Health Sciences, continuing to work with my mentor at, uh, in um, occupational therapy, and then also working with some of the faculty over there. And then once I started working a little bit more in shared decision making, an opportunity came up down in Houston to um, expand some of my work in the context of cancer. And so I went down and joined the um, 
shared decision-making collaborative down at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And there I got to learn kind of the whole scope of shared decision-making from prevention to treatment to survivorship and really getting to see full aspects of how do we kind of come up with these, these decisions or these questions with our clinical collaborators and how do we kind of implement some of these different shared decision-making tools throughout um, the spectrum of cancer care. So started working on that. I applied for a career development award, a K99R00, which would support some of my postdoc training and then help me transition to a faculty position, which was really attractive to me. And I think that this function, the K99R00, is really designed to help junior investigators who are in a postdoc position be able to kind of make that leap from postdoc to assistant professor position. So um, I was awarded the K99R00, finished out my postdoc at MD Anderson, and then was fortunate enough to be able to come back up to WashU. So started um, my assistant professor position in the R00 phase um, at WashU two years ago. So I'm just wrapping up that project and that project is focused on breast cancer screening decision-making for women in their forties, really thinking about when guidelines are divergent, how do women make decisions about whether or not to initiate sorry, when to initiate breast cancer screening, and then the frequency in which to um, elect to be screened for breast cancer, whether it's every year or every other year. So um, that's kind of the space that I've been working in, but it really was a mix of mentors and talking with other people, other faculty members and listening, finding other research opportunities that were around the campus. Started talking while I was still muted, such a Zoom fail. Um, she should think I would have had that by now. But what I heard from both of you is a lot about mentorship and the importance of reaching out to people and getting that support when you have an interest and the support that you got in return when you talked about it, when you let people know what you were interested in and how they connected you around. I also heard a lot of different letters. And I think that people that are just beginning in research careers, there's lots of acronyms, there's lots of funding mechanisms to fund your research, and it can feel very overwhelming and lots of even different types of degrees. So I was, I was reflecting on this as you were talking and thinking about um, Kelly and myself and, and, the both, and both of you, and we all have different paths. Kelly was a speech therapist for a few years or for a while and is now an OT researcher. I was an OT clinician. And we all have different degrees even in, in how we're getting to research. So could you share a, a little bit about that path to research? If you feel like the PhD is the only option to being involved in research or, or what are those different paths? Does any, do either of you have an opinion or thought on that? Erin, uh, maybe I'll throw it to you. Um, you had mentioned that you did your PhD after you had already been involved in research. Why did you end up going back for that? Right. Yeah, um, I don't I don't think the PhD is the only path to research. Um, I. And as well, Ash, Dr. Houston is a perfect example of that. Um, so. So I was doing research as an OTD. Um, I don't think that I, I, I wouldn't have been able to do the type of research um, that I wanted to do 
with only my OTD degree. And I think maybe Dr. Houston knows that as well, which is why we went and, and got that extra master's of science in clinical investigation degree. That really helped um, provide some more formal didactic and also training and more informal like mentored research opportunities to kind of shore up our clinical training with um, some clinical research skills. And with, with that experience, with the degree, but really more with the experience that the degree afforded me, I was able to start getting funding, career development funding on my own. So it it's, would be considered K level funding. Um, there was always a question, not, and not necessarily in my mind or OT's minds, but there was always a question as to, you know, cause your work and your, your background and your, um, education is judged by other people, um, who oftentimes, you know, have been around for a long time and are maybe potentially stuck in more traditional modes of thinking. And so there was always a question that, that I'll, I'll, I'll just say it, that Dr. Joel Perlmutter, as my mentor, you know, was always sort of unsure as to whether, you know, yes, I've, I've been doing well as an OTD, I've got my K funding, you know, my science is strong, that should be enough to get me to the next level, which would be this R level funding. But it's still unclear as to how something like an OTD degree will be viewed by reviewers and also things like getting tenure potentially, I don't know, will be perceived by the people who are actually reviewing your um, applications. So that was always an open question, but I was just kind of going forward, just doing the best I could doing, you know, doing my thing. And it just so happened that during that time, uh, the Wash UOT program started a PhD program, the Rehabilitation and Participation Science program. And I was offered the opportunity to, um, to pursue the PhD degree in that program. And that was when I was still in my career development phase where I was supposed to be continuing to be training and developing my career. So I did it. Um, and now I have the degree. And honestly, I don't know. I'm glad I have it. Um, I'm glad I did what I did because I did also learn more as I was, you know, pursuing the degree. Um, but I, I can't tell you whether I needed it or not. So does that answer the question? I think so. Okay. How about Ashley? How about your training path? I think a lot of people think of research and they think of this PhD, but you took a, a different route. Can you tell us about how that's gone? Yeah. So Whatever I, you'd like to tell I, us. I, I experienced a lot of the, the same questions and feedback from my mentors and from myself thinking like, wow, I, you know, all of the papers that I'm citing in my work, those have been written by MDs or PhDs, like what kind of additional training do I need? And I kept searching for additional training and trying to figure out what my next step would look like. But as Aaron said, like kind of just doing my best moving forward, continuing my work, but keeping an eye out, my ears open for other training opportunities. And so I took a year um, as a postdoc in, at WashU. And then I was a postdoc for another two and a half, almost three years. So I did four years of a postdoc, which is typically pretty much is a pretty long postdoc for somebody who's in my field, more in the public health 
public health realm. Um, but I took that postdoc and wanted to have a little bit more of an extended postdoc because it actually gave me the opportunity to have some flexibility in my training. I kept taking different trainings for um, methodology courses, um, taking different um, cancer prevention courses, um, and it just allowed me to have a little bit more protected time to be able to take those additional trainings and um, really advance my skills. Because I think one of the things that I was a little bit concerned about in my training was really identifying um, more of the kind of, or really uh, being able to use more of the methodology and um, quantitative methods um, to be able to advance my work and my research questions. So having that additional training time as a postdoc was really formative for me and really helped me get to my next to get to the next level. Um, I've had kind of fantastic mentors throughout and I think the question still remains a little bit around the OTD, but I've been working as hard as I can to kind of build up my CV and continue to apply for funding and work collaboratively with other clinicians and other researchers who have strengths in other areas that I do. I know that a lot of the goals that we have are to become this independent scientist, independently funded scientist, and that is still one of my goals. But it's also in this context of team science. So where there's somebody who may be leading the grant, you're still working with a team of experts in a variety of different fields. I have a biostatistician on my grants. I have an epidemiologist. Like it's definitely much, um, very much team science, but whether you're in the leadership role of that team or you're a contributing member of that team, um, it kind of differs. But um, so I still have my OTD um, and am moving forward with, you know, my research in that context, PhDs and additional trainings are not off the table. Right now, I'm going through a training at WashU in implementation science. So it's a two-year mentor training in implementation science, which is an area that I'm really trying to grow into and learn more about and apply to the work that I'm doing, particularly in shared decision-making, thinking about the interventions that we're building and how to actually get those interventions used. So that's a huge research question for me. And so having these kind of training opportunities that I'm able to do while advancing my work professionally and um, keeping my grants moving forward and continuing to write has been really, at least for, for me or so far, has been um, an effective way to kind of keep my skills sharp and keep learning as I'm on, on, as I'm on the job. And I just wanna, sorry, I missed. Can you guys hear me now? Okay, I unfortunately I wanted to hear what you had to say and I missed part of it, so I hope that doesn't happen again. But um, I do want to like point out that the fact that that asked that Dr. Houston, you got that K99 ROO award. I mean, that's a big deal. Um, and I, I think that that sort of is proof that you can do that with an OTD and the right kind of training, um, you know. I, I hope that we're moving in a direction where the science speaks for itself versus like, you know, the degree. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. I think that's a, a great point. And I think what I heard both of you say is really, um, you know, the, the types of training you did were driven by a, your interest and your research and, and then having that good mentorship to really kind of find those right spaces. So, um, so thank you, that, that's great. I wanna shift just a little bit and talk about clinical training and how you've been able to apply your clinical training in your research. 
um, clinical training and experiences. So do either of you wanna jump in and start on that? And I'll start, I'll start, I'll hop in. Uh, so thinking about my clinical training, one thing in particular, as I mentioned, implementation science is kind of at the forefront of my research right now. And one thing that I've really been able to apply to what I'm doing is thinking about kind of clinic workflow and where different things happen, what a, what a clinical space looks like and how to be able to take those clinical questions that are being observed by that team and being able to use it to help inform my strategies for being able to implement my um, tools within the clinical space. So thinking about what that actually looks like and knowing kind of the pressures, the different things that come up within the clinical context, um, it really does matter when I'm thinking about what are the questions that patients are facing and how can we actually support their decision-making process throughout their experience with a variety of clinicians? So it's not necessarily kind of the traditional OTD clinical training, um, but it's thinking about what does it look like in a clinical space, knowing that I've gone through my different field works and experience working with patients and um, with a variety of different disciplines and thinking about at what point do different disciplines speak to patients? At what point does a patient have to make a decision? And then what does that decision open up for um, their, their future, their care, their screening, whatever that means. So really thinking about kind of that patient pathway and the clinic flow has informed a lot of my work. And you know, to this day, I still need to kind of be boots on the ground to see what's happening in the clinical space because I want to be able to kind of identify where there are opportunities for being able to implement some of my work. But um, that that has been a huge factor. And then also, I mentioned kind of these multidisciplinary teams and having the background and medical knowledge to be able to participate and understand and be able to contribute to the same kind of language at the, at the table um, when we're talking about these different questions that are coming up or designing some sort of research question, uh, that has been extremely helpful as well. So for me, I would say my clinical training has just sort of informed more broadly, the, the types of questions, research questions that I ask. Um, and so I ask clinically oriented questions, which as an OT, it means questions about occupational performance, participation in daily life, and also the development of interventions and interventions that can actually be implemented in real world clinical practice. And so having that experience and that knowledge and that sort of finger on the pulse of what's going on in, in real world clinical or community practice sort of helps, I think, the development of translatable um, interventions. Um, and yeah, so I, so I think for me, it's mostly like the, the questions that I ask that have been informed by my training. Thank you both for those answers. The reason we asked that, and I'm not sure if anybody here has, has this question, but one of the most frequent questions that I've been asked is, do I need to practice clinically before going into a career in research? And if so, how many years do I need to practice clinically before going back to research? And um, so I, I really appreciate both of your responses with that. 
I, I think that the answer that I pulled from what both of you said and, and my own experiences too, is that it depends on the person. I, I needed to practice a few years before I knew that research was actually the right career for me, but there's other people that know that they really want to do research and know that from the get-go. And then maybe then your clinical training is what informs those questions um, uh, from, from that space. So now we would like to take a moment, if anybody has any questions, if you'd like to unmute uh, and go ahead and ask. Kelly. I, so I was just wondering, as OTD graduates, how do you feel that doing the doctorate degree helped you in your research career as opposed to doing like a master's and then going into a PhD, PhD or any other alternative um, sort of course into research? Well, so I haven't gone into a PhD, so I don't know if I can speak specifically to that, but thinking of how the OTD set me up for um, my research career was that it, again, I, I feel like I'm talking about this a lot, but I think it's really valuable to have that protective time and space to really develop your research interest and learn about the topic, think about it, learn about the key players in the topic. We all talk about our mentors and as, as Aaron talked about, um, you know, they're her mentors now today. And, you know, your mentors that you've been working with, it's a small world. You'll, <clears throat> excuse me, likely continue working with them and um, continue making connections. They oftentimes, sorry, I'm just going to clear my throat. Excuse me. Um, they oftentimes have the seniority and connections to be able to help you advance your questions. And much like Dr. King um, was able to connect me with someone working in the shared decision making space when I was interested in it, I think that that is um, an important part of the OTD curriculum because I had the built in time and space to be able to do that. That being said, um, I think that really thinking about what your next step looks like. Do you think that you need additional training in a specific area? I think that's where I was somewhat unsure. And so that's why I continued with the postdoc is that I felt like I was receiving the training and mentorship that I needed that I couldn't find in any degree program. There isn't a degree program in shared decision-making in health equity for shared decision-making that I know of. There could be now, but not at the time when I was looking. And so getting that mentor training as a postdoc was really the best option for me and my interest. So that's really kind of what steered me in that direction. Yeah, and, and much like Ashley said, it, it, that third year, that OTD year is when I developed my interest in research. It just gave me the time um, to sort of, you know, focus on an area that I was interested in and kind of follow that that path. And so if it weren't for that third year, I don't think I, I, I wouldn't have really known about the, the research aspect of it. So that helped me because I was just kind of meandering along. But there are some people who know that they want to do, you know, that they want to do research. They want that to be their career or they want to take a certain career path where um, maybe an OTD isn't as necessary or useful as just going right, you know, for a PhD is. So um, it could, I think it can work both ways. Yeah, I think so too. Having done the OTD, I'll just uh, be real, real with all y'all. Um, when I finished my OTD, I had no intention of going into a research career. I was really excited about my OTD and really excited to be a clinician. 
Um, but it was because I did my OTD that I was exposed to research at all. And actually my first job after finishing my OTD was also with Dr. King, who similar to what Aaron had said earlier, Dr. King was the person who had, who noticed that I was, you know, the skills that I had and uh, encouraged me into, into doing research that it wasn't necessarily like, I see your question down here too, Haley, like it wasn't necessarily the OTD, but it was the experiences with the OTD, having that extra year and being involved in a research project and connecting with my mentor that brought me to that research career. That being said, like what Aaron just said, I, I, I think some people really know that they want to do research and then, um, and then it might make sense to do a master's and go straight for that PhD or, or MSCI like uh, Ashley and Aaron both did. And it can also depend on the type of research that you want to do. Um, if you want to do more clinically oriented research, it might behoove you to have that extra year of sort of clinical, clinic, clinically oriented training. Um, There's lots of things to consider that I, I would say you know, for everybody, it's talking with your mentors and yourself, you know, an extra year of OTD school costs money. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it maybe isn't necessarily the path that everybody needs to reach their career goal. I love my OTD, though, so mm -hmm. I'm not bash that at all. Same. I'll say that I, you know, like, if I sometimes I used to think that if I knew back then, you know, where I wanted to go, that maybe I wouldn't have gotten the OTD and I would have gone straight from the PhD. Um, but I'm glad that I didn't. For me personally, I'm glad that I didn't do it that way. I'm glad I did it the way I did because I think that it's just, you know, it brought me to where I am. And so. Yeah, I'm the same. I found that third year, I mean, thinking of getting the OTD um, and getting that extra year of mentorship and time to work on my project and expand what I was doing, it was a little bit larger than um, in scope than some of the other uh, master's programs, master's projects were. So having that um, and the continued mentorship for it, I think was just invaluable. Thank you. Ailey, did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. It sounds like um, in the capstone, we developed some of those skills, but really those mentorships and um, staying longer and asking those questions um, develop those skills too. Yeah, it takes a lot of practice to develop those skills in your question about designing research projects and questions and grant writing. Um, so, you know, no matter what kind of degree program you're in, those skills continue, you have to continue developing those skills beyond the time, you know, post post degree or whatever. Um, so it's a start, but it takes a lot, a lot of practice and, and training. I think we all um, might agree that we're still developing yeah. those skills. Oh, right? man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, thank you all for joining us. If things come up, if you have questions that come up or ideas of interest that you would really like uh, to have us talk about or people um, that you think it would be good for us to talk to, please do send that. that thank you for joining us today. Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist.
and more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at demystifyingresearch.com.